Right, it's time for another interview. Now, this time I'm going to be talking to David Robertson, but I thought you might like to... No, 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 it's all good. I've come to terms with the fact that I won't be in your interviews, uh, and I've actually realised that all they really mean is that I get to sit out of the main episode recording and put my feet up. I'm living on Easy Street. Easy Street? Have you moved? Yeah, well, I was in that hotel down at the end of Lonely Street, I forget its name, but it seemed a bit depressing, so I checked out and moved in somewhere more pleasing. On... Easy Street. Well, not at first. After that, I got a place on Fascination Street. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, more gothy than you'd expect. Everyone kept trying to pull on my hair, pull on my face, pull on my feet. Your feet? Yes, and I wasn't going to stand for that. So I looked for another place and happened to stumble on quite a nice flat on Kelly Street. It was funny, I was only there accidentally after I took a wrong turn looking for another place. Accidentally Kelly Street? Yeah, exactly. And it was a good flat. Sleeping in wasn't a sin, all the housework was done by tea time, but it didn't last. The investigators are going with insurance fraud, but I know spontaneous combustion when I see it. Anyway, long story short, I ended up on Easy Street, not caring about whether or not I participate in interviews. Nice for some. Now, I'm currently high in a desert plain, where the streets have no name. Hmm, thought you would have gone with Penny Lane. Damn it, you're right. Let's start again. Never. Don't, don't, don't let's start. I can't the podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentith. Our guest this week is David G. Robertson, Senior Lecturer in Religious Studies at the Open University. His PhD looked at the role of conspiracy theories in the New Age movement, and he's the author, amongst other things, of The Hidden Hand, Why Religious Studies Need to Take Conspiracy Theories Seriously, and Crippled Epistemologies, Conspiracy Theories, Religion, and Knowledge. With words like epistemology and taking conspiracy theories seriously, David is in great danger of being classified as an epistemologist, although maybe one with a few different modalities at hand. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, very kind of you to at least include me in a broad group of epistemologists. I'm uh, def definitely, um, what's the word? I'm dabbling. I wouldn't go so far as to describe myself as one yet. I'll be caught out quickly. So you're you're kind of epistemolo epistemology curious. Yeah, epistemology adjacent, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Now, my first question for you is really a classificatory one, because everybody asks me, what's so normal about Beijing Normal University? And I suspect there'll be some people going, what's so open about the open university? So what is the open university and why is it open rather than closed? It's open to anyone, regardless of academic background and, uh, you know, and class and everything else that that entails. So anyone can enroll for our uh, for our degree courses, um, regardless of their qualifications, um, which means we have a much wider range of of people and backgrounds at the Open University. It's um, don't have the facts and figures in front of me, but I, I think it's the largest university in in Britain. It was really the first of its kind. It's not a it's not a distant learning university in the sense that we tend to think of now. I mean, we have a full university charter, but it's decentralised, and we were doing distant and blended learning. Um, that you know, mixing distance learning and face to face teaching since uh, 1968 yeah it's, it's a really great place to work it's it's uh 
for somebody who came from a, a working class background, worked all the way through university as a as a mature student, it's very uh, dear to my heart that we have so many, you know, people from working class backgrounds, people who are older, retired people, um, people in prisons, people with disabilities. It's great. What isn't open about the Open University, however, is our um, is the many levels of, of bureaucratic systems that you have to have in an organization that's not only this large, but large based online. That can be a little opaque. Yes, my former HOD, Rosalind Hursthouse at the University of Auckland, used to lecture at the Open University before she became HOD at Auckland. So she spent, I think, almost a decade working for the Open University before she got the siren call to return back to her alma mater back in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And she was always extolling the virtues of teaching at the Open University. And that was well before we even had the inkling in our eyes about the idea of teaching teaching things online, online learning. So yes, the Open University has been quite a trailblazer, as far as I'm aware, Mm. for doing learning across a country at a period of time, which must have been incredibly difficult because you're relying on a postal system to transfer course materials from one part of the country to the other. That's right. That's where they started. But then by, I think... They, they used to have, there, there was TV programs on the BBC. When I was a kid, my dad did a politics degree with the Open University. And so this would have been the early 80s, no, mid, mid to late 80s. So they would show the the TV programs or like you know, the material for the course were shown as TV programs on BBC Two at like two in the morning. So you had to set your uh, video recorder to record it. And then that was part of your coursework. Now, of course, the students would just access it online. Um, but we were we were doing that before the internet even existed. Yeah, the idea of having a TV program devoted to tertiary study kind of boggles the mind. It's the kind of thing you wouldn't expect to occur now, although I guess we would do it all on YouTube or some other video sharing website instead. Yeah, but there was a particular joy in every so often you would stumble across these TV shows in the middle of the night, you know, like um, after a long night with your pals or something and you're crashing out and you put it on and it's Philosophy 101. Um, Quite wonderful experience to to come across one in the wild without any uh, preparation. It's like the idea of a night out with your pals. Of course, drinking coffee and other sensible Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, no rum doings going on. In effect, no rum at all. All right, we should get on. We should get on to the business of big conspiracy theory. And the usual question I always ask my guests is, who or what got you into conspiracy theories? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a long. <laughs> it's potentially a long answer because I, I every time I think about this, I go slightly further back. So uh, I can we, rem- can't, we can't start from the big bang. We need we need at least the, we need human civilization at the very least to be oh, okay. I'll jump for yeah. I'll jump forward a couple of steps then. Um, I when I was young, there was some sort of anniversary of the JFK assassination. I think it was maybe the twenty fifth anniversary, and there was a lot of documentaries on the TV with various um, various uh, alternative theories being presented. And around the same time, um, we had 
uh, the famous David Icke interview on the Wogan show. Now, oh, yes. Britain, the, one, the one where he came out as the Messiah. Kind of, yeah, that one. And he made a bunch of predictions about the end of the world and some various other things. Um, that was an enormous media storm at the time in Britain, like to the, the like Diana's death sized, right? It was huge. It was all of the papers for days. Um, but the, in those days, there were only... I think Channel 4 existed then. So there was four channels. The Wogan show was the biggest show in the country. It was sort of seven o'clock in the evening and it, pretty much everybody watched it. So like I saw it live at the time and, and um, it had a, a big effect on me because whilst what he was saying was kind of bonkers it was the reaction of of the audience and terry wogan and then the press after was just like angry ridicule it wasn't just that there was a bit of mockery it was like how angry people were it really sort of surprised me and even by that age i was already sort of thinking well like if this wasn't if this was like an indian guru figure there wouldn't have been the same response or if it was the archbishop of canterbury or something um so, yeah, so I'd, I'd have vaguely interested in that kind of stuff from then. And then, but it didn't really occur to me again until years, years later. I was at Edinburgh University. I'd started doing a religious studies degree. Initially, I was sort of more thinking about doing something around biblical studies, something quite sort of traditional. And I took Stephen Sutcliffe's course on the New Age. And there was just a mention of David Icke in one of the one of the in one of the additional readings it was talking about the history of, of new age and its connection to the to the green movement and and there was david Icke's name and i thought oh. <laughs> uh, and i went off and i got i think it was the biggest secret or tales from the time loop or one of these sort of mid-period books of his from the library and read it and i was and i just couldn't believe that nobody was sort of writing about this stuff it was so rich and there was this long history and all these interesting you know uh, green party politics and the football and tv career it was just like a really interesting uh, story and um and stuff that nobody else was saying i mean it, this is pre it's not pre internet but it's pre you know the way that the internet dominates uh, media now so you didn't come across this stuff on a regular basis. And it was just, it was such an interesting and completely different worldview that I, I just decided I was going to spend some time exploring it. And the rest flows from there, really. You've seen David like live on stage, haven't you? Yeah, I was at the the big Wembley show in, I think it was 2012. Um, so there was about 6,000 people there. Um, it was one of the long events. It was when the, the actual talk was about seven or eight hours. And I think he had he had his son's band doing sort of entertainment as well. Like So in between each, there was like three sections. And in between, Gareth would come on and do a couple of songs. It was a, it was a big day. It was a grand day out. Yeah, I've been, I've been to two of his talks. He's been to Aotearoa at least three times. And I've been to two of the talks he's given. And yes, they are eight hour long extravaganzas. And we haven't had quite the crowd of 6,000 people. We've had around about 1,000 people attend each. So there's, he's a fairly big draw even back home. And it's kind of astounding because 
you and I have both both lectured. We've probably lectured in lecture slots that we think are overly long. But I don't know about you, but I've never given an eight-hour lecture, and I certainly have never been able to keep my energy up the way that David Icke seems to be performing for eight hours straight without slowing down. Yeah, it is quite remarkable, and he's um, he's such a natural orator as well. He's a, he's a very entertaining figure. Um, the he's he's not doing the the eight hour ones anymore. He sort of has slowed down quite a lot since that period. There was there was a few the twenty twelve, and then there was a, a few in the couple of years after that. But he's sort of slowing down to a more. He does these shorter events where it's like um, an evening with, where it's less of him presenting for eight hours and more conversational. But he's, I mean, he's late 60s, early 70s now. So, I mean, he was, he was in his 50s, at least when I, when I saw him, you know. So, I mean, as you say, I would be struggling after a couple of hours so it was quite remarkable yeah he he did admit the second time that i saw him live that some of the energy does come from the occasional gin and tonic in the breaks so a little bit of revital revitalizing alcohol to re- kind of wet his whistle yes a uh, a uh, uh, a revitalizing tonic yes with 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 a good bit of gin to stave off what <laughs> might might ail someone and probably keep the archontic virus from invading his system unexpectedly. Well, you know, if I have his energy in ten years' time, I'll be, I'll be quite glad. So maybe it's worth me having a word with the archons. Um, I'll have some of what he's. <laughs> Or maybe it's just the gin and tonic. That's all it is. Well, I mean, it probably does help with a few flights of fantasy. You probably need to find a conspiracy theory you feel that you are comfortable espousing to crowds of thousands of people at a time. And then you can tour the world just like a younger David Icke. It's his, um, the, the presentation that sort of the talk, the history of it's really, really interesting. Um, because there are still slides in the eight hour talk from his very first presentation like way back um i think 92 or 91 was the first of the sort of yeah because that would the truth... be the robots rebellion period wouldn't it that's the sort of second period the first period is the uh the truth vibrations oh, and yes. love changes yeah, everything yeah, yeah. and it's very it's all channeled through a medium and it's all very theosophical language so it's all earth changes and edgar casey and root races and that's and the the different beams like the the different colors of energy and all that stuff um and he sort of he doesn't talk too much about that stuff anymore um but so you get i think five books like that that they're very they're progressively slimmer you get the sort of five books and then the robots rebellion is when he changes into uh, an overtly sort of conspiratorial narrative. But Robots Rebellion is still very new age and very millennial in its outlook. And it's not really until into the 2000s when it's um, you wouldn't obviously pick out any kind of new age ideas in there. Although there are still, there, I mean, there are still elements within, I mean, the last talk I saw of his was in 2016, there's still elements of the new age, as you say, persisting, you know, given the mm-hmm. reuse of slides. And I think what is, and this is a this is a weird thing for people who 
I probably skeptical of David Icke. One of the refreshing things about David Icke as a conspiracy theorist is the fact that he will admit his views have changed over time and he's evolved in his views. So he'll quite happily make fun of his messianic moment on TV. I've seen him play the clip on stage and laugh at himself, going, look, what a wanker that guy appeared to be. Look, look at the weird, look at what, look at the, the shell suit he's wearing. What a weirdo. He's willing to go, look, I've changed my views over time. I'm in a learning process. And often that goes against the kind of stereotype that we associate with conspiracy theorists, having this rigid, monolithic, unchanging view. And David Icke is a great example of someone who we might think is wrong, but he's willing to admit that some of his wrong views were wronger in the past. He's also still got a overall positive view of things i mean there's there is no uh hint of violence or anything being espoused um and there's still that ultimate the ultimate message is that all of us are part of the same being experiencing itself subjectively and um you know and the message is still about you know love being the answer and love being the only thing that's real or the only truth um which uh, you know i'm often asked about Ike being a, an anti-Semite and the answer is complicated and probably not for the start of this podcast but um, I, I'm always reminding people that in terms of the overall message is certainly not one of hatred or of violence um, despite some um, bumps on the uh, along the way uh, and that's not something you can say for a lot of other people you know <clears throat> Alex Jones for instance or somebody like that um, so I, I do think that needs to be borne in mind with Ike. He's not, uh, he's certainly not a hateful figure overall. Yes, he's not expressing a kind of virulent, violent, hateful rhetoric, even if we think that some elements of his rhetoric come from earlier virulent strains of conspiratorial thought. Right, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'm, I'm not... Um, making excuses for his use of uh, anti-Semitic material um, at all. Just from the impression you got from him from certain press uh, reports, you would imagine a sort of rabid and angry, sort of hate-filled uh, person. And that's not the impression that I've got after uh, 20 years of being uh, completely absorbed in his work. Yeah, and we might come back to Ike towards the end, because I think there's actually quite a lot to say about Ike's worldview and the kind of spirituality he espouses versus, say, people like Alex Jones mm. and kind of the contemporary focus on conspiracy theories. But the fact you've mentioned 20 years of study of this brings me to, I think, the other interesting issue, because we're we're kind of part of the old guard of people who've been engaging in conspiracy theory theory. We started our work on conspiracy theory theory well before it ever became popular. And of course, I know I faced resistance when I was first proposing doing work of this kind back in the days before conspiracy theories were of pith and moment. Did you face much resistance to pursuing this kind of work in your early days? A, a little, but I suspect not as much as you did. I mean, I think of us as like, we're like those, we were like the 14-year-olds at 
the first Sex Pistols gig, you know what I mean? We just made it. <laughs> we just made it into the old card. Um, but as you say, you know, the amount of work that's been published since like 2016 or something is, uh, or, you know, it seemed like the, the run up to Trump was when it all, you know, it became an acceptable thing to to write about. Um, I had, actually, religious studies is pretty open-minded and pretty keen uh, to get new ideas in. So actually, from most of my academic colleagues, I didn't get too much resistance to the idea of doing it. There was a bit of pushback from some more sort of conservative uh, colleagues. The problem with religious studies is in the UK, it's always bound up with, uh, it's always religious studies and theology, right? So in any department, you're always going to come into contact with people who are doing um, sort of theological, confessional, uh, identity-based stuff. Um, which I don't regard as being the same subject at all. It's got a completely different set of epistemological uh, assumptions and methodologies, but uh, there you are. So they were less keen. So I think if you're a person for whom being in this field is about justifying and or shoring up religion, then you can see why you might be unhappy with someone who appears to be saying conspiracy theory is a religion, which is the, you know, the reductive version of um, of what I might have been seen to be doing. Um, I had the first thing I wrote on it as I wrote a sort of 10,000 word essay, which was like my undergraduate final assessment um, from from the first degree from the from the MA. So it had to be, it had an internal marker. It didn't go to to uh, external academics. It went to an academic within, um, in this case, New College in Edinburgh. And one of the examiners was absolutely furious with the, with the piece. I mean, it wasn't a great piece, it was an undergraduate piece, but they weren't, they weren't critiquing it for those reasons. They just were furious at the idea of this thing. Um, they said... Uh, should should a student even be justified, could even be looking at this thing? Doesn't this just justify this nonsense in a university? Um, and then they also bizarrely said, this, it's, uh, this is all just American nonsense, despite the fact that the two case studies were uh, Nexus magazine, which is from New Zealand, and uh, uh, David Icke, who's British. But I... I I think for some reason, I think they, they, they had a third person adjudicate it and they thought it was fine, so it passed and I got away with it. But there was always a sort of lingering sense of... Um, there were a certain section of the university who just saw me as the UFO guy and never engaged with me in any way whatsoever. And, uh, you know, when it came to graduating, I don't have a job there. So <laughs> you can... Uh, uh, but uh, I mean, you you certainly weaken your job chances when you decide to do something that isn't seen as respectable. And this, the way that the study of religion has gone in Britain, um, again, as I said, you know, it's very connected to a sense of identity. There's sort of the, the universities departments now seem to be largely set up 
where they they want a person who's an expert in each of the five big religions, right? So you you want you want a Christian guy, you Judaism, you want Islam, you want Hinduism, and and um, oh, what did I miss out? Anyway, you get the idea. Um, and I'm none of those. So uh, that so that's not an example of of sort of open hostility or you know people say you 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 can't be a good scholar doing this stuff, but it's just uh, it does mean you can't getting a job was considerably harder as a result of the decision to study you know everybody goes this is great this is really innovative material but you you can't feed your children off such comments yes people end up going look your work is great we just don't know how you would fit into our department so in oh, your yeah, case, no, i've had yeah. i've had that yeah that like how would you do a course on this so um i think there was there's always been an assumption as well that, you, that this is all that you're going to talk about right so people yeah. go how can yeah. you how could you do a course on on uh, conspiracy theories for first years and you know one answer is to tell them how you could but um the, the most obvious thing is like it's not the only thing I've ever read. You know, I mean I can teach basic on anything. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm not gonna come in and start making every course about conspiracy theories. Although you could. I could, yeah. And it always comes in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I I find even when I'm giving academic talks which don't touch on conspiracy theories at all, I end up going but of course, this is a kind of side issue, but there's a conspiratorial issue here, which also is quite interesting. So you end up going, yep, even I find myself kind of sliding back into my primary research when I'm doing other work. It's great for me. I can speak to scholars in other disciplines much more easily, perhaps, than some of my other colleagues can, because it's always been work that's in this sort of slightly ambiguous position, you know, where um there's a strong philosophical aspect to it there's a strong sort of you know the sort of political uh political history aspect of it it's uh, so i i can have uh, you know you know like when when we talk for instance we're very seldom talking about overtly religious ideas or our terminology so i might have uh i might have had more luck getting a job in a different department perhaps i don't know it didn't come to that I mean, there's only there's only a handful of folk doing sort of religion and conspiracy theory in any sort of committed and systematic way, and I'm pro I'm probably well. There's I mean, Asborn, Asbjorn Dyrendal in Norway and me are probably the two people who were doing it first. There's some other good folk coming up now, though. Yes, and it's encouraging that second gen generation to kind of establish. The kind of groundwork for future work, which I think is quite an important thing to do. So you do the establishing work yourself, and then you need there to be people who are going to be your natural successors of some kind to show that the work has legs going forward. Which sounds actually yeah. that, that's a terrible metaphor. Legs <laughs> going forward. Legs going forward. <laughs> I think of it as like I'm I'm the guy with the machete hacking through the jungle, and they're they'll they'll come and lay paving slabs behind me that's yeah. right you're the intrepid colonial person and they're the ones who bring civilization to the habit oh, land oh no <laughs> wait 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 can i take it back nope nope <laughs> it's it's too far gone <laughs> too far gone
Now, we're talking about conspiracy theories. We should probably get your definition of what actually counts as a conspiracy theory, especially since you state in the hidden hand the following. To be blunt, a conspiracy theory cannot be defined simply as a theory that posits a conspiracy as an often, as is often suggested. Now, as I'm one of those people who's often suggesting a conspiracy theory is simply a theory about a conspiracy, what is a conspiracy theory in your theoretical framework? Okay, I I don't really define conspiracy theories. I, I don't think I've ever published a definition. My approach is much more based in critical theory, where I don't see conspiracy theory as a as a as a substantive category, right? I don't think there's a thing at the center of it. And Maybe this is easier for me to say coming from a background in the critical study of religion, because religion is the same, right? It's We talk about it like it's a thing. It's It has a legal existence and it has a an existence in discourse. People use the term. The usage of the term precedes any academic work, right? I think as I, I don't really see our job as to be to really try and come up with the definition because it's pretty clear when you start poking and pulling at it that it's doing a lot of different things, right? It, it's constantly shifting. Anytime you, you define it in one way, you're going to find an example of how it's used and it doesn't fit or there's, you know, logical inconsistencies. So my understanding of conspiracy theory then is much more to do with the social organization of knowledge. Um, and I would, and I, th I think this comes from constantly looking at it in tandem with religion. So I think religion and conspiracy theories are terms that we use to describe certain kinds of accessing knowledge that aren't the usually accepted avenues for so doing. And that can be like kind of metaphysical or supernatural or spiritual things you know so where there's actually different modalities of knowledge but it can also be things like um you know that that there were no planes that hit the world trade towers you know something like that where it's it's not necessarily sort of supernatural but i i think that the two terms are tied up in different ways of just the way that the progress of knowledge has gone over the last um, few hundred years, you know, religion comes in as a way of managing the former regime of truth, right? Before the Enlightenment and modernity, as we think of it now, so rationality and capitalism and liberalism and imperialism. But the older order of truth that came before that, that was based in the teachings of the church, gets sort of shunted off into this into this thing we now sort of talk about as religion um and there's a similar thing happening with conspiracy theories but we're a lot earlier in the process right it starts it's starting to happen after the second world war definitely and it's it's a sort of combination of fear about totalitarianism and you know the 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 ideas about mindlessness and um brainwashing and things that go along with that and security secret services right so the idea of intelligence services that vast mechanism that existed in the wars carrying on without the war so they're looking for other threats and then and you have this emerging global 
order, right? And one of the things that's very different about the world now than 100 years ago is how global our ideas of truth and liberalism and rationalism and, and capitalism, right? So that way of seeing the world and a particular set of norms um, is now almost universal. And and so conspiracy theory is a way of managing things which don't quite fit into religion, but are part of this, uh, that are don't fit comfortably with this global world order. And that's the way that I understand them. Okay, so they're a they're kind of a category of the other. They go against what is used in scare quotes. There's no there's, it's it, it's an audio podcast, but we can pretend I'm putting scare quotes around yeah, yeah. the mainstream views. We in the same respect, we used to talk about religious views as being different in some way, shape, or form. We now see yeah. conspiracy theories as being different in some way, shape, or form. And that's kind of a product of the modernist project where we go, well, religion is something which is apart from the political order now. It exists in its own little sphere of influence, even though actually even only a few decades ago it was playing a much bigger role in the public sphere than it is now. But now now it exists in a separate space. It, it's it's to do with, uh, you know, like giving it its own its own category you sort of remove it out of ordinary political talk and you and you place it to one side so it still has um it's still capable of affecting things there's still a lot of 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 connections and effects and, and entanglements happening all the time but you can separate it in discourse and you can separate it in law and you can um you can separate religious aspects out from economic aspects or other things that you wish to manage right and and that's starting to happen with uh, conspiracy theories are another example of the same thing starting to happen i think you are you will often hear things along the lines of you know oh we conspiracy th there's a boom in conspiracy theories because of this post-truth age and nobody knows what's true anymore and i actually think the exact opposite is the case i think we have an increasingly obvious category of conspiracy theories right stigmatized or or um non-acceptable ideas because actually far more of us on a global scale and far more of the institutions governing the various states in the world actually agree on more things. There's very few states in the world where they're going to stand up and say, we reject science, right, or or whatever. There, There's almost universal agreement on the idea of human rights, even if there are certain of those human rights that are still up for debate, um, you know, of... Um, uh, representative democracy of capitalism in some form as the dominant uh, economic organizational model um of science as a, a you know a way of finding out objective knowledge of, of of science as the you know the 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 top um most reliable and and basic level of of, of attaining knowledge um so i, I the conspiracy theories are a result of that hegemony. The more we all know what the truth is, the more something that isn't that truth sticks out, right? And that's why I think we have uh, this this uh, new category emerged. 
Yeah, so the more that people disagree with the orthodoxy, the more people are going, oh, that's a, that's a strange view. What's causing that strange? Oh, well, that must be a conspiracy theory of some kind. Because you're, if you're disagreeing with the orthodoxy, there must be something askew with your kind of epistemic mode, mode, modality you subscribe to. And these days, we think of those people as being conspiracy theorists. Yeah, yeah, they're, they are, they're the, the new primitives in in the midst right so we we've moved we've moved where the boundary of of knowledge of legitimate knowledge is um into our own societies now it's no longer you know um out on the colonial periphery um we conquered all of that already and incorporated all of all of those territories are now part of the same capitalist uh, liberal order um, so now we can we can start focusing on these people among us who haven't uh, you know got with the the program. They 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 have these primitive conspiratorial ideas, but that's okay. It's just because they're ignorant. If if they uh, you know we can sort them out. And yet, there's kind of a weird aspect of this, particularly in Western cultures, in that the old other religious belief somehow is a kind of respectable state within the societies in which we live. Although, that being said, I, I, I work and live in China. China very much eschews any kind of notion of there being a religious background to the kind of Chinese cultural state. I have a Sinologist friend who works here at Beishadar, who goes, well, that's just because they work with a bad definition of what counts as a religion. Actually, a lot of Chinese cultural practices would appear to be religion according to some definitions. But they've gone, look, religion isn't part of our culture. It is a kind of irrational other belief that some people in the West have. And yet, in many Western cultures, it's okay to have religious belief, but it's definitely not okay to have belief in conspiracy theories. Yes, um, exactly right. Not only is it okay to have religious beliefs, the idea of of uh, the protection of religious freedom and the right to religious belief is um, enshrined in law, actually, in, in most countries. And so you have weird situations where it is perfectly acceptable to object to, say, vaccination for religious beliefs, um, but it's illegal to do so if that if your if your belief is defined as conspiratorial, right? If it's if it's you think that doctors have made up the disease, for instance. Yeah, and and there are there's nothing inherently more rational about uh, a religious belief and i'm you know with i'm using it in a wide sense don't need to get into defining it um then there are you know uh, uh some of the more metaphysical kind of conspiracy theories from, from a philosophical point of view there is no um if something is um coming from a supernatural source it doesn't make any difference whether that comes from an angel or from a you know, an extraterrestrial intelligence or whatever. And yet, you know, religious uh, uh, institutions are deeply embroiled in, in modern states. I mean, in the UK, we still have uh, the bishops of the Church of England um, in our upper house and with a, um, a, a veto over legislation. I mean, the situation in China is really interesting. The comment about uh, they don't have a very good definition of religion is really interesting because 
um, religion was part of that order that was uh, exported around the world by force as part of colonialism. That you um, you brought real religion to the colonies, right? And uh, you know, think about um, the way that Hinduism was essentially sort of invented by the the British in order that they could uh, tick a box as to what religion these people had. Um, Japan's surrender at the end of the Second World War was also um, predicated on Shinto being adopted as a state religion. Cold War wasn't only an ideological war, it was very closely tied to ideas about religion. So, uh, so you know, comp- uh, the, the USSR being not only a secular state, but a, a, an atheist state, that meant that the the um, the American side of it ramped up the Christian aspect, right? And all of the in God we trust and um, one nation under God, all of that was added um, to the American civil liturgy, if you want to put it that way, in the 1950s. These weren't original parts of it. They were added during the height of the Cold War um, as that sort of ideological battle became a, a a battle of good and evil and that meant you know religion and atheism so th- yeah that that idea of religion as being something which is inherently part of the colonial order but also always positive right it's, it's almost always positive and indeed when you get a religion which oversteps its bounds right so when you get a religion that starts trying to take the state's right over violence for instance then it gets there are moves to distance it from religion they'll start talking about instead of um well a famous example is is and when barack obama um gave that speech where he said we, we shouldn't refer to isis as isis because they're not really muslim Right, they're they're not real Islam because no religion, no real religion, would ever uh, be violent. Ah, so he 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 engaged in what we call in the philosophy the no true Scotsman fallacy. No true Islamic state would engage in behaviour like that. Yeah, and and no true Scotsman like myself is going to accept that name for a logical fallacy. But that's it. That's no, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the the I mean, the actual formal name is a fallacy of misrepresentation. But unfortunately, it has this rather colloquial phrase of yeah. you know the man from Edinburgh going, "Oh, no, tr- no Scotsman would do that," and they hear about the man from Glasgow. Well, no true Scotsman would do yeah. that, which indica- which I think just speaks to the rivalry between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Yes, indeed. Um, so, yeah, or, or you know, terrorism, extremism, these, uh, so religion has, religion's like, it's like a deal, right? You can, you can engage in certain um, non-empirical beliefs, and you can even act on them in certain circumstances, as long as religion behaves itself and doesn't step into realms which are um, reserved for the state. And and conspiracy theories, you see some of the same dynamic, right? Where if you're just writing about UFOs and you're channeling stuff from the pilots of UFOs or whatever, and it's got a message that there's going to be volcanoes and earth changes, 
that's fine. You're a figure of ridicule. But when it starts uh, interfering with state, certain state functions, so, um, you know, telling people not to get vaccinated or or to, to protest or, you know, or whatever, then suddenly it becomes uh, a problem. And a large part of the recent upsurge in you know, conspiratorial scholarship and and government rhetoric is because it's largely revolved around you know the um, elections in the US and the UK and and then the COVID uh, the anti vaccination stuff, which was clearly a concern for governments. There's a there's a, a just as a final thought. There's a really interesting example: the the um, American Psychological Association Diagnostic Book. The most recent version of that, um, in the entry for schizophrenia, where it's talking about um, if a person's having visions or or like hallucinations, um, it's it's a it's treated differently if the content of those visions can be corroborated by a representative of an acknowledged religious tradition. Um, and then if they can't, right? So it's a symptom of schizophrenia, unless a priest says otherwise. So if 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 you could if you can find a priest who says yes, yeah, so this is clearly a vision of um of of Mary. This is all Marian symbolism. Um, then that is no longer a symptom of schizophrenia. Whereas if you said um it was the archons that you were seeing, um then it is. So what you're saying is that if David Icke had gone, so it was was it Wogan or Aspel that he made? The, it was Wogan, yeah. yeah it was and if when he'd said to Terry Wogan, by the way, I'm the reincarnation of the Messiah, and the Archbishop of Canterbury had walked out and went, yep, David's quite right, he is, then it, you go, oh, well, that's fine then. Thank you, Jesus, for coming on, on the show tonight. But the fact that the Archbishop of Canterbury didn't come up and endorse David Icke. That's what actually made him to make a claim which is outside of the ordinary. Yep, yep, correct. Well, I mean, this is from a, a diagnostic perspective. Yep. So if, if yep. it was a psycho, you know, a, a psychiatrist who was watching this and was asked, is he schizophrenic? Then David Icke bringing out the Archbishop of Canterbury to vouch that he indeed is, um, or... Not even the, the the Archbishop wouldn't even have to vouch that he was just that those visions were legitimate parts of Christianity. This is giving bishops a lot of power, a lot of power to go. Well, look, I mean, you might think that your patient is suffering from psychological delusions there, but I also have those delusions, and I'm endorsing them. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it's like you know, like Medjugorje or or something like that. You know, there are these visions um which are quite important to a catholic to the catholic worldview so yeah there has to be a way of legitimizing some and delegitimizing others and actually medjugorje is a nice example there because of course the church vacillates quite a lot as to whether those were authentic marian visions or not i remember when i was a when i was a good roman catholic back in the days before my atheism our parish priest was going to lead a cohort of our parishioners to medjugorje to the site of the visions and then it got cancelled because the cardinal of the new zealand catholic church went 
words come down from Rome, at the moment we have our suspicions that those visions actually weren't legitimate. So because of that, we're cancelling all trips at this time. Well, there you go. It's, you know, uh, these like, the categories like religion, conspiracy theories, I mean, even UFOs, things like that, they are, I don't think there's any one thing at the core of them. I think they're just their ways, they're, they're ways of putting things into, right? They're, they're, there are phenomena which could be in, in any of these categories, depending on how, of, of how it moves, you know, and they're, they're vague, they've got loose boundaries, um, but they're, they're deployed in different ways. Um, there's a really interesting one happening at the moment, actually, where the, the, the term cult, as it was employed in the sort of 60s and 70s, has completely changed. It's now almost exclusively used in a political um, modality. It no longer necessarily means, you know, um, half a dozen people living on a farm and one of them's a prophet. It now means... Um, like in the sense of a cult of personality, right? It yeah, means a the, political... The cult of Trump, for example, is a common yeah. phrase we see in the media yeah. all the time now. And you see it as well in, in, in you know, whoever is the most left-wing politician in the country and whoever is the most right-wing person in the country, is. it's always they're presented as cult leaders. And so it's, it's, it's completely, uh, completely shifted its meaning and what it's referring to. In a relatively short time. Yeah, to the point that actually during the pandemic, we've had talks about cults of economists and cults of epidemio epidemiologists, depending on whether you think the right response to COVID was the economic response of opening borders and resuming trade, or the epidemiological response of, well, actually, we need to control the virus and then go back to situation normal once the virus is either eliminated or has transmuted in such a state that it actually just becomes like a common cold. And so we referred to whoever was the rival view at the time as having a cult-like mentality. So the economists are engaging in cult-like thinking, or the epidemiologists are engaging in cult-like thinking. Yeah, and it's it's a very good strategy for delegitimizing the arguments of other people. But it sort of it entirely functions on the idea that the majority are correct that's me i mean that's maybe a mundane point to make but you know all of these are it it's it, if if you're in the minority view that's a cult and therefore it means you're not you haven't reached a different conclusion to me by you know by rational means and perhaps with a different set of evidence you're not thinking Right, that you, the only reason you could be thinking something which isn't the same as the majority of people is if you're you're essentially have been brainwashed. Your own volition has been taken away, and you've become a sort of mindless, um, a member of a, an unthinking group. And I, I don't know. That seems to me to be kind of an anti-democratic move. I mean, it sounds like in those situations when we start talking about conspiracy theorists in that way we're engaging in what might be on one level a folk psychological diagnosis of particular traits that make them think differently. Or if you're a social psychologist actually looking for the psychological traits that you think actually lead to this unwarranted belief in conspiracy theories, which is really problematic. And this kind of brings me to the other 
big topic. So we're both members of the reading group that I run on conspiracy theory, theory. And you made the rather explosive claim about a month ago that you think that maybe the work in social psychology, when it comes to at least to talk about conspiracy theory, theory, might be showing some evidence of being a degenerating research program that maybe they're trying to find answers to a problem which actually doesn't exist in the sense that they think it exists. There's been a lot of work in social psychology in the last decade or so. So just before Trump's election, you start to see a lot of work in social psychology start to emerge, trying to define what counts as a conspiracy theory, what are the characteristics that we see associated with conspiracy theorists that lead them to this unjustified or irrational belief in these particular conspiracy theories. And we've seen a lot of definitions be raised and then discarded and a lot of experimental work, which is pointing towards psychological traits, but those traits end up being really inconsistent. Sometimes they explain why people have conspiracy beliefs, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they only explain certain kinds of conspiratorial beliefs, but they don't explain other ones. And so after this end of this really long conversation about a recent forthcoming paper by Karen Douglas and Robbie Sut Sutton, you were making the claim that, look, it seems that once again, they're trying to come up with a definition which explains the work that's already being done, <clears throat> rather than actually trying to create a framework for doing work going forward. Right, yeah, and I'm maybe kind of sensitive to this because this has been uh, an ongoing problem in the study of religion as well, where you have to sort of there are still scholars who are trying to come up with a definition of religion and to me this puts uh the cart before the horse um you're attempting you're not really defining something in in the the, the proper sense of drawing a boundary around a set of data that you're then going to use what you're doing is you're trying to construct a sentence that that captures as much of the things you've already decided are part of this category or have already been decided for you. The problem is that things like religion and conspiracy theories start in an undefined popular discourse and are used in multiple and um, often contradictory ways. Um, I, 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 I don't know how useful it is for scholars to sort of define terms like that because I think it just first of all nobody cares right you can define something any way i want it's not going to change how you know joe public uses the term or politicians use the term or whatever and um, but also it's just bound to fail because it's not a single there's no single thing but i think the 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 social psychology approach to this is thinking that there is a, a central thing and, and there, on two levels so one is that there's a problem. They they always approach it from the this this is a social problem, and then secondly, they want to define conspiracy theories in a very scientific modality, as though conspiracy theories were a natural kind, right? So that they're like carbon or you know uh, oxygen or something, um, as though that there's a simple way that. It, defined rather than a social category which is it, it it doesn't have a single thing at its center it's it's 
center is in language essentially and and so that's why i think you're seeing the this uh you know recent tendency to to try and you know summarize the the last 10 years or so of work and and to to systematize it and really sort of see where they are what like can can they produce a a, a definition can they have a standardized approach um but it seems to me more like um that it's a it's a uh, degenerating program in the sense that it is no longer capable of making predictions that are then testable but it's more attempting to shore up uh the subject itself and you see that i mean the, the a clear example of that is the definition that that um douglas and sutton put forward which is just like it's got about 15 clauses it's three lines long it, there's no sense in which that is what people mean when they say conspiracy theories right it's it's an it's deeply abstracted and i think maybe psychology has been the victim of its own success here because there is a sense in which the findings of social psychology are, i think are very appealing they can be they're they're usually testing a fairly simple hypothesis and they they are very clear in their methodology the methodology involves numbers and tables so it's very easily communicable and oft, and you know often presents an answer to a single question now if you're um a very busy legislator or you're a journalist or you're a politician and you need this stuff uh, this information boiled down and accessible very quickly, then this work is perfect. It's it's got a clear message. It can be described in a few sentences, and that's not always the case with more uh, nuanced and you know social scientific uh, critical work. And I think that has meant that they get a lot of attention for work, and they also get um, a lot of funding um, f- to do more work especially because um, the, a lot of the people who are providing the funding also see the theories as inherently a social problem. And so that approach um, fits ideally. But it's clear when you start looking into these detail that there's quite a lot of massaging. That's maybe too hard, but there's definitely there is a smoothing off to get to the arguments that's being made a lot of the time. So sometimes there'll be a very clear example, right? So they'll start with conspiracy theories are a social problem. And so we need to deal with them. Um, To do this, we're going to compare a number of different theories and see how deviant the people who hold them are. However, conspiracy theories are not always wrong. So we're going to ignore the ones that are wrong. And they're not always irrational, so we'll ignore any that aren't irrational. And so we've got this test to find out whether conspiracy theories are related to <laughs> irrational and dangerous ideas. And so we're and to do that, we've only looked at irrational and dangerous ones, and we've concluded that they're irrational and dangerous. Well, of course you have. Yeah. So it's the it's the classic case of look, I want to diagnose what's wrong with these theories. So I'm only going to look at the theories which it's wrong to believe in in the first place. I'm going to show it's wrong to believe in theories. It's wrong to believe in. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and to be fair, this is not only a, a problem for a social psychology or even you know any sort of um, 
quantitative studies, uh, you see the same thing, um, you know, to take an example from religious studies where people will say, where did his power as a speaker come from? Well, it came from his natural charisma. All right, what's charisma? Charisma is a, it's a it's where you're a powerful speaker and you can convince people of stuff. These kind of loops happen all the time where you define something in one way and and, uh, and therefore are surprised to find that that's how it functions. Um, but I think it's a particular problem that that process is often obscured in 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 this kind of social psychological work. It's either hidden in footnotes where they're, you know, oh, by the way, we've added a constant to all of the results to make it work, for instance, or we've ignored such and such a paper because if we include that, it's uh, inconclusive, or, you know, rejecting a large amount of data because it doesn't fit your idea of the category when you're about to, to test that category. Um, and it, conspiracy theories, of course, there's there's the additional complication of things don't always stay conspiracy theories right you get ideas like for instance a few years ago the idea that these security services were monitoring all uh, telecommunications or the existence of the Bilderberger group if you go back to 20 years when we started working that was very much the you know, the domain of of David Icke and Alex Jones it's now completely out in the open and no longer regarded as a conspiracy theory but those things are then of course removed from the category you don't consider them as part of the data which has the effect of the, the category of conspiracy theories can never lose the stigma of being irrational because if something becomes rational it gets taken out of that data set and and is no longer a conspiracy theory so the conspiracy theory, the way that we use it, always has this implication of something being irrational or, you know, inherently just wrong for whatever reason. Yeah, and there's a nice example of that in the way that some of the social psychological literature on conspiracy theory links talk of conspiracy theory belief with paranormal beliefs. So mm -hmm. we, we take it that typically paranormal beliefs are non-ordinary and weird. So people who believe in ghosts are weird. People who believe in telekinesis are weird. People who believe in astral projection are weird. So they go, well, look, all these weird paranormal beliefs, and they seem highly similar to conspiracy theory beliefs. But they never talk about the religious beliefs. No. So the religious beliefs, because they're they're part of acceptable societal beliefs and discourse. We don't which appear to also be paranormal beliefs yeah. i mean if you're if you're if you believe in a trinitarian god you believe in one entity and three parts one part of which is a literal ghost and yet somehow that is <laughs> that's that's pushed to one side that's a, a trinitarian belief which is fairly standard christian belief unless you're a, a unitarian no no that's normal that doesn't fall under the roof of people who believe this also believe other things as well right and and there's two really interesting things there one is that that the the idea of paranormal or supernatural follows Christian ideas of religion right so something like that there's a thing called a ghost which isn't part of religion uh, but that an angel that is part of religion that separation comes from like what is included in Christianity and what isn't. Because right? like 70 odd percent of people in 
most countries in the Anglosphere in the Christian world believe in ghosts to some degree. Mm. Um, and, you know, UFO belief is similarly high. So, so then when you have one of these surveys talking about supernatural and connection between supernatural and um, conspiracy things, all, they, they even have to be cagey about how they define supernatural because there are elements of things that we think of as being supernatural, which are just normal parts of everyday life or and or religious belief in other parts of the world. You know, like goats is, is there's nothing marginal about that in China, say, right? Uh, there um, are other parts of Southeast Asia. But, but it's supernatural and paranormal may also include things that are taken from indigenous traditions that are sometimes thought of as religious, right? Something like, you know, like dream catchers or feng shui or uh, oh, there's probably a million examples, right? Do, where do you put something like Reiki, right? Is, is that a religious practice or is that a paranormal belief? And that's the is kind it of just decision. an alternative medical modality? Right, right. And these sort of, so even in including anything supernatural or paranormal, you're still making these boundary decisions. Yeah, I mean, chiropractic's a great example there, because you know, chiropractic technically is about subluxations in the spine, which means to spiritual misalignment, which thus causes all your illnesses. And in some parts of the world, chiropractic is taught as part of standard Western medical treatment. In other parts of the world, it's an alternative modality you can take at med school, but it's not part of the core curriculum. And in other parts of the world, it's considered to be superstitious nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so all of these, all, all of those, the uses of those categories and the examples that you put into those categories are, again, simply reproducing this particular western um order the order of things right where uh, the paranormal's okay because that's like folk beliefs religions that's protected that's a good thing anything which doesn't really fit in any of those is conspiracy theories but we're free to move anything from any of those three boxes depending on um on how our uh, positionality changes right how things pan out the the, the other thing is the question, like, so why isn't religion included in these? It's such an obvious move, and it troubles so many of the models that, that are being used, particularly in social psychology, but in a lot of cases as well. And there's like, there's like three possibilities. One is that, that they're just they've, they've so inculcated the idea of religion as part of the, the order of things, of this is, uh, this is just there that they don't consider something like transubstantiation or virgin birth or whatever to be like non-empirical. They're just, they just don't notice. Um, the second is that they are aware of it as an issue, but they don't want to include it in the analysis because they think it will anger people and possibly mean that they don't get their funding. Um, or not be approved by the university or whatever. I certainly, I know that there are cases where if you're talking about religion, that marketing teams for universities will not include it in their social media campaigns, for instance. So, uh, And then third option is that they don't put it in deliberately because they know it will upset the results, right? If conspiracy theories are a problem because they are... 
uh, non-empirical or non-rational or what was the term they used in in the the Sutton um, paper we're talking about like em, em, empirically unwarranted um, empirically um epistemically risky right mm, yes that's right um, however you choose to put it they're less likely to be true they um they form larger narratives that potentially affect politics they involve you know powerful agents working to a set plan but keeping it secret um they often involve kind of uh, supernatural, you know, or metaphysical modalities of knowledge or being. Any one of those things applies to religion as well. Now, I'm not saying that the way that we understand conspiracy theories and religions are identical, but every part in constructing a definition of conspiracy theories that in any way includes the data that we always include in conspiracy theories today, every single one of those factors religion complicates it. So we need to think then about what are the implications where if we are still insisting that conspiracy theories are an inherently dangerous way of thinking, and yet we cannot we, we cannot clearly delineate it from this other set of ideas, which we regard as inherently beneficial and ultimately, in some cases, you know, as an essential aspect of modern society. Um, that is, for me, the most interesting question, and it's it's it, it the the complete silence on it um, from social psychology is curious, uh, to say the least. And I think that brings us quite nicely back to Ike, because as we said before, if Ike had been endorsed by the Bishop of Canterbury when he came out with his messianic claims, maybe British society, and actually, I actually don't imagine if the if the Archbishop of Canterbury had actually endorsed David Ike, things would have gone any better for him. I think, I think actually the Bishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop would have been laughed out of his office at the same time. Yes. But at the same time, as we said earlier, even though there are virulent views in David Icke's worldview, the kind of worldview he puts forward actually would fit in quite nicely in almost any evangelical Christian church you might come across. You know, as long as we act together, we have the right kind of beliefs. We work together as a society to defeat the systemic evils which are at the heart of what causes human illness then things are going to get better, which makes him quite different from Alex Jones, who quite regularly is, at least appears to be asking his listeners to engage in violent revolt against the state. David Icke is simply telling people, look, if we all have the right thoughts and we believe the right things, things are going to be better. And that makes David Icke a really interesting case of a conspiracy theorist there, because a lot of what he says is being said by pastors and bishops in churches all over the UK. But because David Icke also believes in alien shape-shifting reptiles, his beliefs are unusual and thus not acceptable, whilst the religious beliefs being expounded from pul pulpits everywhere in the UK is kind of within the ordinary and is allowed to go ahead. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is a... There's an alternate history where Ike becomes more of a 
of a, a de facto religious figure. You can see immediately after that sort of Wogan um, fallout where there's there's a press conference where it's it's him, uh, his wife, uh, his girlfriend, and his daughter, and they're giving a sort of press conference, and they're all dressed the same. And you get the sense, you know, at that moment, I could easily have moved into the register of someone like like Herf Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles, you know, the sort of Heaven's Gate or something like that, of, you know, um, gathering a, a, a group around him and looking more at ways of life and things, right? So more of a client kind of religious entrepreneur. Um, that ultimately didn't happen, obviously. But, I mean, it's it, it seems obvious like his predominantly best uh, he's best viewed as a religious figure i mean he's clearly a prophetic kind of figure and a, and a leader figure and it's as you say it, it's a couple of specific kind of things that that mean he's completely excluded from uh from that uh modality and the thing which i find fascinating about ike is that he's not only well understood, I think, as a religious figure. He's also quite a conservative religious figure who fits in with the general conservative attitudes of most other dominant religious figures in mm. Western society. Because the thing which struck me from sitting through two of David Icke's talks, he actually doesn't want people to do anything. He just wants you to belong to the creed, pay the tithe, buy his books, believe what he believes, and the world will just naturally become better as long as you have faith. And that does seem to be the kind of standard view of many of the dominant churches. You don't mm. need to do anything. You just need to be a member, and that is sufficient to change the world. Yeah, I mean, and he does talk about uh, sort of non-compliance and things from time to time. But yeah, it I is mean, a very... that might be a post-2016 thing. So I think under the COVID he's... thing, he's become yeah, well... very anti-COVID and thus doesn't want anyone to wear masks. Well, he just started talking about that stuff when I saw him in 2012 because it ended with the non-comply dance where they, they had like sort of people and banging drums and, and oh I see that, that, that was not part of his tour down no, under, i have the, to say the, so that's yeah. that's interesting the Wem the wembley show was was deliberately sort of the the biggest show he ever did it was quite a it was quite a conscious thing um but yeah it became a bigger uh aspect of his work later on particularly as you said uh you know under the covid period but, but yeah, I mean, it's essentially it's a message of of love. The the uh, you know the future is more or less spelt out. Always with Ike and and people like Alex Jones as as well, you get this sort of double um, double teleology where it's 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 almost it's always the darkest point of night and that's why you can see the green shoots coming right so it's like simultaneously apocalyptic and millennial right so there, there's a, a better future coming but to get there you have to go through this this dark patch right which of course means you're always at the same point of crossing you never actually move forward but um but yeah as you say so um teleological message uh, message of oneness all religions are ultimately the same thing um 
yeah, it could fit in entirely with any number of sort of interfaith uh, kind of movements. Yes, David Icke is all things to all all people. At least he tries to be. Yeah, I, I've to be fair, I've fallen off um, following him. Uh, that a couple of years ago, the last I was listening to him would have been about twenty twenty when the lockdown was on. There was a, ser- a series of of YouTube stuff, and I, I uh, got yes, the his... da- the Davidite dot connector. His series of yes, videos where right. he 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 explains he explains the last thing he read in five minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, um, and how everything that happens somehow uh, demonstrates his uh, overarching kind of argument and worldview um but he it was basically he was one of the first people to to be a public sort of spokesman against lockdowns and vaccination and so he got a bit of uh, a press for that but i haven't actually read one of his books for a few years largely because having read every book up until uh, I think 2016, the the lion sleeps no more. Oh yes, yeah. Having read every single one of the books in chronological order up until then, it becomes clear each book rehashes the previous one, and then adds a little bit at the end. So I kind of uh, decided to stop uh, reading every one as it came out for a while. Uh, but I've got the answer is sitting there um, in my Kindle yet to read. So maybe yes, it's time I remember- to revisit. The difference between his talk in 2012 and his talk in 2016 was in 2012, he wasn't talking about the Archons and the Archontic virus. And in 2016, suddenly the virus was the new thing he was adding to his panoply. And thus that now explained all these other things in history that he had found mysterious. It was also quite clear what films he had watched in the interim because... David Icke, I think, really, really likes science fiction films and yes. seems to want to justify watching them by going, oh, no, there are the secret messages in these films I watch. I watch them for research purposes, not because I enjoy them. No, 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 I watch them for research purposes. That's the only reason why I watched all of the Hunger Game films. It's the only reason it was research. I, I like the bit where he becomes a, when he becomes a grandparent and then children's films turn up, like the Monsters, Inc., um, being a metaphor for the Archons coming to our world in secret and stealing our energy. That was uh, that was a big part of the 2012 presentation. And yet at the same time, I have to assume, having spent time with parents, he's only actually watched the first 15 minutes of Monsters, Inc. Because then the children <laughs> have got bored, wandered off, and then you have to start the film again from the beginning when they actually want to watch it again. So he's probably only watched 15 minutes of each yeah. of these films. I mean, to be fair, there are multiple levels in which the metaphor doesn't doesn't hold out, but you know, it it did enough. I remembered it. But yes, yes, David Icke, interesting character, and possibly not that long for the world. I mean, he's he is getting on. Yeah, but, I mean, he's, but he's... Gareth has been set up as the natural successor, so that also I think brings you another religious aspect to the David Icke phenomena. There is the next person who's going to take on the mantle of the prophet yeah so it's not institutionalized charisma it's um there's a there's another word for it where the the charisma is passed directly to anointed successor uh, his other son jamie is also uh, probably more involved than gareth actually but 
tends to be more sort of behind the scenes. Um, Ike transferred ownership of all of his business to the kids about 10 years ago, I think. So Gareth and Jamie and the daughter, whose name I don't remember right now, are they own the company. So all the profits from his books, he's not making um, anything out of it. He's still named as an owner, but it's like with a penny share or whatever. So he, he is um, quite deliberately sort of um, using it to set his kids up. Um, especially, I mean, Gareth's recording career seems to have more or less come to an end. So I, I suspect that Gareth will be the, the one to take it up. Yes, he will take the mantle. Now, that actually brings me into my final question. And I think this is the most difficult question I'm going to ask you here. It's it's linked to succession. It's linked to the nation of Scotland. I want to know, who is the best Scottish Doctor Who? Now, there is actually a right answer here, but I, I want I want to know whether, whether you're going to get it. I just I just want to be I just want to be clear on our terms, right? So I can think of two. No, there's three, isn't there? Now technically there's four because David Tennant's back, but it's yes. a different doctor. Well, yeah, yeah. No, we'll ignore that because that hasn't well, it's only been about five seconds at this yeah, point. Yeah. Um Right, so it's not Capaldi. I like Capaldi. He was great in, in the thick of it. He's not I, I yeah. didn't Stephen, like those episodes. Stephen Moffat did not serve him well with stories. No, I don't think so. Which means I, I'm going to say it's Sylvester McCoy. That is that is that is the correct answer. Yeah, I'm not sure that. Whilst David Tennant is Scottish, Tennant's Doctor Who I think is eleven. Is that right? Yeah. He yeah. he he was not Scottish. Oh no, sorry, ten. So he was ten. It, he was ten. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, ten it, and yeah, fourteen. Yeah. 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 His Doctor Who is not Scottish, got a London accent. So well, I think it's yeah. arguable whether there are three Scottish Doctor Whos. There are three Scottish actors who've played Doctor Who, but there's only two Scottish Doctor Whos. And Sylvester McCoy is clearly the best one. Yes. Very, Having met very. him as well, he's a very funny and nice guy. Yeah, so. I, I met him at a convention in Auckland about 10 years, years ago now, and he's an absolute delight. Absolute delight. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a cracking guy. So it's it's Sylvester McCoy, and um, I'm glad that we have found this area of common ground to end the podcast. On. Oh, we've <laughs> I, actually I've, we've got a lot of common ground, but it's a terrible thing when friends disagree over Doctor Who. It's the kind of thing that can cause a rift in a, a relationship. So or a space time a... continuum, for that matter. Well, it's true. Things get very timey wimey from this particular output. Thank you, David. It has been a wonderful conversation, wide ranging, with a lot of talk about David Icke. A lot yeah. of talk about <laughs> David Icke, but he is—he is hard to escape. He is hard oh, to yeah, escape. It's the fountainhead. That—that—that that, that is a scary thought. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. The podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's conspiracy producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember...
the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it.